Welcome to the show. In this one, I talk with Roman Dial, an academic and a longtime explorer of Alaska's natural world. Since the 1970s, he's been out there, in the backcountry and in the wilderness, in search of that next thrill or moment in nature. He actually says that there's a difference between the backcountry and the wilderness. While the backcountry has trails and is near a road or a town, the wilderness has no trails except for those made by animals and is three days or more from civilization. In the wilderness, you're surrounded by nature unaffected by humans, and you can drink from freshwater streams. This is the world that Roman has always been attracted to, one that is wild and full of possibilities. There's always another mountain to climb or a valley to explore. He's 60 now, and that excitement and passion for the outdoors hasn't subsided. By supporting Crude, you make it possible to produce stories like the recent series by author and journalist K. Jared Mayer. It's about Alaska resilience during the COVID-19 pandemic. In it, Jared talks to a musician, a chef, a bar owner, and a sex worker in order to understand how the service industry in Anchorage has been affected. Here's Jared with the first paragraph from Bruised Never Beaten, A Story of Alaska Spirit, Part 6, The Night Worker. Sex work has been around since the beginning of time, recorded in our mythologies and religions, written on paper and papyrus, etched in stone. It seems almost inherently human. It is certainly resurgent. There is an apocryphal story that the first business to reopen in New Orleans in the wake of Hurricane Katrina was a strip club. Deja Vu, the first club to officially do so, stated that they considered reopening to be a public service for those working hard to rebuild their flooded world. And yet, in thousands of years of human advancement, through the Industrial Revolution and the rise of billionaires who pay pittances, in an era where enterprising spirits and the commercialization of everything are held up to be admired, how is it that sex workers have been left so far behind? When 40 million Americans regularly visit pornographic websites, accounting for 35% of all internet downloads, how is it that such a stigma toward sex workers still persists? Why is asking for money to show or share your body a step too far, when sexting and consensual sex between adults for free is considered perfectly fine? I want to thank everyone subscribed at the Company Man tier. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, Aquila Space, and Northern Knives. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. Your money and your support make these conversations possible. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. That's buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. And if you have a chance to rate or review Crude Conversations on Apple Podcasts, please do. Okay, back to Roman Dial. In 2014, Roman's son, Cody Roman, was on an exploration in Costa Rica when he went missing. Over the course of the next two years, Roman traveled to Costa Rica in search of his son. He says that he felt that it was his duty, and that he wouldn't be able to live with himself if he hadn't. Then, in 2016, 
Cody Roman's body was found, and it was determined that he had been killed after a tree had fallen on his campsite. In the aftermath of all this, Roman had a realization that all the adventuring he's been doing was selfish, that he'd been doing dangerous things because he got a thrill out of it. So he started to back away from the activity of scaring himself. Today, when he goes to nature, he's more conscious of his mortality and how his death might affect his loved ones. And there isn't a day that goes by that he doesn't think of his son. So here he is, Roman Dial. <laughs> this red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work! Roman, I read that after your first winter as a college freshman in Alaska, you almost left. Do you remember why? Yeah, so when I first moved to Alaska, you know, I moved to Fairbanks, which, um, you know, if you're from Anchorage, Fairbanks seems pretty extreme. And I was coming all the way from Northern Virginia. And, you know, I'd been to Alaska before. I loved Alaska, but boy, the winter was just too much, you know, and... Mm -hmm. um, living in the suburbs in the East Coast, uh, you know, the social environment was was what kind of dominated my life. Um, but moving to Fairbanks and then spending the winter there, I realized that the physical environment, just the darkness and the cold could dominate not just my life, but everybody's life. And, and so that was sort of unsettling for me. Yeah, in my experience, I I feel like there are certain people who come to Alaska in the summertime. And in my opinion, it is very, very difficult to beat a place like Alaska in the summertime. And I think that that paints uh, a certain image of Alaska and then people move there. And then all of a sudden January and February hit. Is, is that a little bit of what happened with you? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, December came and, and it was my winter break and I actually hitchhiked down to the lower 48 um, in December, mm -hmm. uh, you know, down the Alcan Highway, and that was a shocker. But um, but yeah, but I came back, and and actually for a while, I I actually have, you know, I've been living in Alaska since 1977 now, and so I'm used to the winters, and I I know that they're coming, and um, you know, I wasn't born and raised here, but I did move up here at a young enough age mm -hmm. that I felt like I was able to adjust. I think a lot of people, I completely agree, you're totally right. The summer and the winter are so opposite here. And if your only experience is with summer, winter can be a shock. Mm -hmm. But if you're young, you can kind of roll with it and learn to adjust to it. But I think it's a real challenge for people who move to Alaska in their middle age because it, it's, you know, it's a much harder place to adjust to once you're older. What ended up making you stay? Well, you know, the summer after I'd come up, I, um, you know, I, I just traveled around Alaska and I got a job. I actually worked on a fishing boat for one day and made mm -hmm. $750 in one day. And then I, uh, I went to um, <clears throat> the Ruth Glacier and went on a climbing expedition. And I just had a lot of neat experiences and I had a lot of freedom and, um, and I just love the idea that there's a place that's still wild where where it's just it's not all about humans or where when it is about humans, you value every human you know because there's so few of us. Mm -hmm. You know, I've said this on the podcast before, 
But in my opinion, there are certain people that come to Alaska and they fit into maybe two different categories. But I think that in those categories, something consistent or parallel with both is the idea of escapism. You know, whether they're escaping for better or for worse from uh, maybe legal troubles or just kind of the hustle and bustle of, of everyday life. Do you feel like maybe you fit into that category of just wanting to get out? Yeah, maybe. You know, I, I guess that um, uh, I'd had come to Alaska when I was nine years old and I spent the summer near uh, Usabelli, well, actually in Usabelli, but near Healy. And um, when I was nine and I had a really wonderful experience there. Um, and I, I think my parents were having marital problems then and they sent me, they sent me up to uh, Alaska to live with my uncles for the summer while they tried to work out their problems. And, and I'd I thought it was great. I guess at that point I wasn't, I didn't really feel like I was escaping anything, but I, I did discover that, um, I enjoyed, um, nature here in Alaska. Mm -hmm. And, and then I think when I returned to the East coast and, you know, I used to hike in the woods near my house in the old days, suburbs used to butt up against sort of natural areas, but the population's grown so much that suburbs don't always do that. And, and with stranger danger, you know, families keep their kids from wandering around in the woods. But I had a really nice area to wander around, big, you know, 600, 700 acres. And um, and I used to go there quite often. And then um, it was slated for development, and I tried my best to help um, protect it and and failed. Um, I was just a teenager, so I don't know what I could have done. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I testified and... Uh, and wrote letters and that sort of thing, and and um, and I moved to Alaska to go to college. Um, so maybe in the back of my mind, I was just escaping. Oh, just sort of the, you know, the fact that um, the natural world was just being sort of consumed on the East Coast, and and maybe that's what I was escaping, but without really knowing it. Um, not I wasn't trying. You know, I didn't not like somebody who's running from the law or some legal problems or trying to start a new life. I wasn't yeah. consciously doing it, but I had been to Alaska before and I, I, you know, hiked around the Appalachians and been all over the U S pretty much visiting natural areas, but none of them were quite like Alaska. And so I really, I felt that was the place I needed to go. And that's where I came and I've stayed. It sounds like you've always been drawn to the natural world. Yep. I have been. And I, I um, sometimes I think I haven't really grown up. I'm 60 years old, and I'm I'm still drawn to the natural world, and I still kind of enjoy all the same things about it that I have as far back as I can remember. Mm -hmm. So I also read that you spent three decades, the 70s, 80s, and most of the 90s, exploring the Alaska wilderness almost obsessively. What do you mean by obsessively exploring? <laughs> well, I, I, I think I still am obsessively exploring. So um, I guess by the obsess, obsession that I have is I maybe I'm not really satisfied with um, one trip to a particular area because uh, I leave and there's still another mountain I want to see what's behind or there's mm -hmm. another valley. I, I guess I want to know more about it. And I, I become obsessed in the sense that I... Um, probably devote more of my time and attention to it at the 
at at the uh, cost of other things that I should be doing. So, for example, you know, like, I, like I'm trying to say, I'm 60 and I'm, I, I still have an obsession, in particular with the Brooks Range. And I spent, oh, <clears throat> most of the summer um, hiking and, and pack rafting in the Brooks Range, but doing it for a scientific reason, collecting data on vegetation mm-hmm. and its response to climate change. And, uh, and I mean, I... I've come back and there's still places I want to go. I mean, I spent three months up there and I, I didn't see at all, of course. And there's still places I want to go back to that I, I did see. Mm-hmm. I'd like to go back again. And then there's valleys and, and mountain ranges that I haven't seen that I'd like to go visit. And I think that is an obsession when you're, when you can't get enough of something. You mentioned climate change and the research that you're working on right now. The other day when we were emailing, you said that you'd like to talk about climate change and its effects on Alaska hunting. Is there crossover there? You're not with hunting per se, but I, uh, you know, I'm, I hesitate to call myself a hunter. I do hunt. I got a moose last weekend. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I, I think it's like the 18th moose that I've, you know, hunted, cleaned up and eaten. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I, I do hunt um, a lot and I, I appreciate hunters and I, I especially people who hunt to eat. And, um, uh, but I've discovered that over the years, because I've been hunting, you know, for 35 years or so, I, that places that I've hunted have changed and the animals there have changed and they've changed in ways that are, are basically congruent with how the climate is warming and some places it's getting wetter and some places it's it's drying mm-hmm. and um, so for instance this moose that I got this last weekend um, I I thought he was in a moist meadow and because I, I shot him from a bluff and I thought he was in a moist meadow and then when I got down there I found out that I I killed this moose in a in a marsh that was knee to chest deep water and um, and it had trees in it, but they were dying birch trees. And, and so this meadow, it had once been a meadow, but the permafrost below it had, had melted. And so this whole big meadow was subsiding. And as it subsided, as the permafrost melted, the landscape sunk, and then it flooded. Mm-hmm. And that has created this really wet, marshy area and it used to be like a dry meadow where moose would come around and and you know either mate with each other or fight for the right to mate and um and so it's not used that way anymore because of climate change melting the permafrost and this whole thing just sinking in and becoming wet and there's other examples in other places for example um in the northwest arctic which is where i've been doing a lot of my research so um, up by Kotzebue, mm-hmm. there's two rivers that drain out, drain the western Brooks Range near Kotzebue. There's the Kobuk and the Noatak, and there's a there's a really big caribou herd. It's maybe the biggest one in the state, the Western Arctic caribou herd, and I don't know, 15, 20, maybe 30 villages depend on the Western Arctic caribou herd because it migrates so far. It's one of the it's one of the land mammals that migrate farther or farthest in all the world because each year they they you know they walk you know i don't know a thousand miles basically north and then south to mm-hmm. go up to drop their calves and then come back for their wintering and they have to swim across these rivers like the noatak and the kobuk river where 
where um, you know villagers will hunt them and um, there's one place where uh, people have hunted them for centuries I guess probably maybe even thousands of years and in the last five years or so they've they, they stopped coming there they you know maybe they came once out of the last five years when when they were when they were um, you could you could always count on them they were reliably this the caribou were reliably swimming mm-hmm. at onion portage and they they've stopped coming there and during some of my other research between the no attack and the Kobuk, I found that a lot of the caribou trails that um, they've been using have been overgrown by by brush by shrubs in particular by willows and so the willows when they're knee high or or even thigh high the caribou can push through these willows but these willows have been growing so rapidly because that northwest arctic alaska is warming faster than any place else in the united states hmm. and this warming is and it's also because it's warming the chukchi sea which is the ocean between alaska and um, Siberia, north of the Bering Sea, so north of the Seward Peninsula where Nome is pointing at Siberia, north of that is the Chukchi Sea. Mm-hmm. And that used to stay, f- that used to freeze up really early, like October. Um, and now it's not freezing up until December and it's not freezing up completely. And and so, because it's warm and because the ocean's not freezing up, the wind is blowing these storms are blowing across open water and bringing moisture into the mountains where they haven't brought it for you know 10,000 years or since the last warm period and with all of that moisture and all of this warmth the uh, the shrubs and the and the bushes and trees in some places are growing thicker and taller and they're deflecting the migrating caribou from their historic paths their migration routes and this this because they're being um, directed elsewhere the local people they're like wow we don't have any caribou to hunt and they're blaming sport hunters who are flying up there for chasing the caribou away so this is this climate change is actually causing an effect that's being blamed on other people and causing conflict in the area wow and the arctic ocean has two kinds of ice it's got multi-year ice where it's kind of like a glacier and the ice never melts it just builds up and keeps freezing and freezing and freezing and it can get really deep and that is melting but then there's seasonal ice just like you live here in anchorage right cody i'm from there yes okay so we get seasonal snow you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. we have snow and it comes and it goes i mean it's creeping down the mountain and we're like whoa winter's coming but it'll go away Mm -hmm. and so there's a there's a seasonal ice and that's what forms on the bering sea and then there's seasonal ice on the Chukchi Sea. And what's happening, that seasonal ice on the Chukchi Sea is forming later in the year. And the storms that blow off of the sea, um, if they're blowing across ice, they don't pick up any water because the water's under the ice. Mm-hmm. But if the ice hasn't formed, then that water can evaporate up into the atmosphere and get blown up into the mountains either as rain on snow, which kills dull sheep like you know immediately because they can't paw through that crust to get down to their to the food they need Mm -hmm. or it's just dumping a bunch of snow on the landscape and then in the springtime that snow melts and it and it just it's wetter and it it allows more plant growth so so that's kind of what i'm talking about so so what happens from here or or what should humans do to mitigate all this that's a really good question. I, I'm afraid I, I don't have an answer other than, you know, I am, um, I, I, I was not, I didn't, 
you know, at first, when I was in graduate school 30 years ago, mm-hmm. 35 years ago, and the professors where I was, I was at Stanford University, and the professors there were saying, you know, humans are, are causing climate change, and I didn't believe them. First of all, I, I didn't, you know, like, I, I kind of believed that it was, the temperatures were changing, but I didn't believe that humans could do it, you know, um, it just seemed improbable, and uh but I, I went to some lectures and I heard some talks and I talked to some scientists and, and they said, well, it's not just going to warm. We're going to get a lot more chaotic climate. It's going to be like when you heat water up. The water doesn't just get hotter. It starts to roil and boil and gets very turbulent. Mm-hmm. And and that's kind of what we've started to see. And, and I went from a non-believer to a believer. Like, first of all, the climate ha- is changing. There's no there's no denying that it's changing. Mm-hmm. Secondly, though, we're, we want to know, well, what's the cause? And and it's not only what humans are doing, but it's it's almost like we've started a forest fire. You know, like we, we're lighting matches and throwing them onto paper, and, and then that paper's catching fire. And so the paper was already there. And so what I mean as an example is we've, we're heating up the atmosphere, and in the Arctic, the atmosphere is warming, and as it warms, it's releasing, um, for example, other gases out of the tundra, out of the frozen ground that have been locked up and frozen for a long time, like methane and other what they call greenhouse gases. And so that's causing mm-hmm. more warming. And then these shrubs that are growing, they're actually absorbing more sunlight, and that's really all that heats the whole world. The, the, what heats the world up mostly is sunlight and if you have a white a white ground like snow that bounces the sunlight off and we don't warm up like if you wear a white jacket outside in the winter you don't really get as warm as if you wear a black jacket if you wear a black jacket you can actually overheat you know Mm -hmm. what i mean yeah and so if the ground is absorbing more sunlight as it will if it has like a darker green vegetation mm-hmm. or more woody vegetation, then that also warms up the ground. So it causes more warming. So it's as if the human humans have started some warming and now it's kind of, you know, I don't know, seems like it's getting maybe out of control. And I would also have to agree with everybody who says, oh, you know, the climate's changed in the past. It's always changing. Well, absolutely it's changing, but it's never changed this much with a civilization that we have erected on this earth with, you know, 7 billion people who are as interdependent as we are now. And and also, it's it, we're not like a primitive person. We're not primitive people who actually know or, or have the ability to live off the land. Mm-hmm. So what's going to happen? Yeah, you ask. Well, first of all, I do believe people are causing some of it. And so we should, you know, follow the rule of holes. If you're in a hole and you want to get out, well, stop digging the hole. So number one, <laughs> yeah. let's let's follow the rule of holes and stop digging. And then number two, um, I think that instead of, you know, fussing and fighting with each other over this, I mean, it's kind of a bummer, like, you know, there's a bunch of beads on a string that seem to go together. So if you're a hunter, for example, then then that means, you know, you most hunters, not all of us, but most hunters, hunt with firearms and and so they have a priority their 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 priority is to make sure that that their second amendment rights you know the right to bear arms um 
you know, remain intact. Mm-hmm. So, so that means they're kind of going to be in the conservative pool. And, and because they're in this conservative way of thinking, which is fine, that means that they're going to reject the idea of climate change, even though climate change is, is changing the number of caribou and sheep and moose that they that that we Alaskans like to hunt. So it's mm-hmm. kind of it's kind of frustrating that that our the way our political system is set up that you you have to you have to buy this whole package. You can't pick and choose which issues you you want to you want to support. You're you're stuck with them glued together. So you ask what can we do? Well, if we're going to stop digging holes, you know, part of it is a political thing or or at least a um an advocacy, an advocacy issue. We have to be willing to to kind of divide our issues up, and and for example, fight for gun rights, but also fight for uh, an environment that's not changing so rapidly. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that you started off being a, I guess, a climate denier when you were younger, and then you you morphed into someone who is an advocate for um, climate awareness, you know, climate change awareness. Well, I think that's really well put. Yep. I would say that 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 would be me. Yep. And how long has climate change been a focus of yours? That's a great question. I would say that probably, um, it's hard to believe, but for the last 20 years, um, what happened is as a research, you know, I'm a professor, I'm a professor at APU Mm -hmm. and, um, at Alaska Pacific University here in Anchorage, and I've been there for about 30 years, and I teach statistics, and um, I teach, I don't teach ecology, but I, I advise graduate students who work on ecological projects. I used to teach ecology and biology, my PhD is in biology, and about 20 years ago, um, I had a student, and she was looking at all the vegetation in Anchorage, and mm-hmm. she was taking um, historical photographs and comparing historical photographs of the past to the present here in Anchorage. And there was a lot of um, vegetation change, and most of it seemed to be drawing, because actually she was working on wetlands. She was looking at wetlands, and there was a lot of wetland drawing, and the only place wetland creations were coming is where, you know, like a road would be built and it would back up some wetlands. Um, some water on one side of the road and create a wetland. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting to me is that she was looking at places where there was no development at all, like along Chester Creek or Campbell Creek. And she could see that the vegetation was changing. Wetlands were drying up and it had nothing to do with human activity that was you know, land use activity nearby. Mm-hmm. And and I thought that was really interesting. And it came out in her her vegetation classification. And I talked to this um, other scientist from the Kenai Peninsula, uh, um, a man named Ed Berg, and he was the ecologist at the Kenai National Wildlife Refuge, and he goes, oh, well, you know, the Kenai National Wildlife Refuge, it's drying out. We have a bunch of um, old photographs from the 50s and photographs from the 90s taken from airplanes, and you can see that these um, ponds and lakes and marshes are drying up. And so we shared a graduate student who digitized these water boundaries, these water, uh, these lakes and whatnot. And most of the Kenai, northern Kenai lakes were drying up. And these were lakes that were what they call closed basins. So there was no water coming in or going out. It's just Mm -hmm. like a, 
you know a bowl of water out there and that's when I started to see um, and Ed showed the temperature records from Kenai you know the the town of Kenai that showed that it was getting warmer and the precipitation was kind of staying the same and so if it's getting warmer and the precipitation staying the same then you're actually going to lose water like the landscape's going to dry out and that's when I realized wow the climate is really affecting things um, and then you know that got me interested in the effects of climate change and Ed also pointed out to me that um, it looked like tree line was moving on the Kenai Peninsula because he'd hiked around on the Kenai Mountains and usually if you hike around uh, in the Chugach or on the Kenai you'll walk through the forest and then the forest starts to get kind of thin and and gets shorter and then you bump into really thick brush you know thick alders and and then the, the alders um, block trees from moving uphill because the alders cast so much shade mm-hmm. um, and then you get above the alders and you're in the tundra and what Ed showed me was that trees were were hopping you know seedlings so seeds were blowing over the alders and landing in the tundra above the alders because it Mm -hmm. had gotten so warm in the mountains that these trees were growing where no trees had grown you know for hundreds if not thousands of years and that's when I started to sort of look into the whole climate change literature and that's when I I started to try to look into the the mechanics you know of how um, carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases affect the atmosphere and that's that's about when i started to see that it was anthropogenic change i feel like as an explorer you're in this unique position where you're constantly putting yourself in areas where you can recognize all of these changes well it's true um one thing that's been very helpful um for me is that um i've been i've been doing it for 40 years now and um and so uh it's a long enough time period that i can actually see the changes and and sometimes i wonder well like let me just tell you some of the changes that i've seen walking around yeah one is the brush has gotten a lot worse you know like it's a lot worse and i used to go out because i'm 60 years old i guess i keep coming back to that because i do feel kind (laughs) of old but um but when i was in my 50s cody i would go out with young men um that's one of the nice one of the things I like about um, you know being outdoors is that it's something that we can all share like it's harder to share you can share classical music but sharing pop music is difficult mm-hmm. across generations you know yeah. um, you, I guess you can share art but usually especially in our culture today there are like technology is a very young person thing and you know it's almost cliche to talk about how much older people struggle with their computers or their phones whereas a young person sort of just seems to have a natural gift for it and one thing i like about the outdoors and i mean you know hunting and camping and crossing rivers and climbing mountains and dealing with bears and bushwhacking is that it's something that we can all share mm-hmm. at any age and that the older we get the more experience we have and that experience can be shared with younger people who can actually value it because there's there's it's you know we live in a youth oriented culture so it's nice to find things where you you young people and older people can can find common ground yeah i feel like an affinity for nature and the outdoors is similar to math where it's this universal language <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I think it is. You know, I, I that's a really good point. And there's a, um, you know, and I want to I want to circle back to to this, um, you know, what young people have told me. But just just as an aside to your comment, there's a a scientist, uh, kind of a philosopher too, named um, E. O. or Ed Ed Wilson, E. O. Wilson from Harvard University, and he wrote a book in the 80s called Biophilia, and he advocated in that book that humans have have spent a lot more of their uh you know their if you want to use the word evolutionary lifespan you know like how long we've been humans mm-hmm. we've been humans um in a natural world far longer than we have in this newly created human world you know like yeah. and and so we still have a lot of that stuff hardwired in us like we're afraid of big animals we're afraid of cold we're afraid of the heat we're afraid of heights mm-hmm. we're afraid of the dark we're afraid of spiders we're afraid of snakes we're fascinated by animals and um and all of that is kind of hardwired into us to kind of allow us to survive so um so i it's i've been i've been lucky enough i've been very fortunate enough to be able to share experiences with with people younger than me over the last you know decades and when I told them that I thought the brush was getting thicker, for example, in the Alaska range, they said, oh, Roman, you're just getting older. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but I said, well, that may be true, but the tussocks are getting easier. So, you know, brush is one of the, you know, in the south central Alaska, brush is something that we we have to fight through to get up to the top of the mountains. But up in the Arctic, um, tussocks are, uh, you know, these clumps of grass like stuff that grows, you know, like kind of like a gallon milk jug or um <clears throat> like a, even we sometimes we joke 55 gallon tucks and and they grow in wet areas and they're really unstable and difficult to walk through and what i found over these 40 years that i've been wandering around alaska is that the tussocks are getting smaller and easier to deal with and less extensive i mean there's still some places that are, that are really bad and the shrubs are getting thicker and more extensive you know, I want to get back to those three decades you spent obsessively exploring for a second. Can you tell me what those 30 years out there in the Alaska wilderness has taught you? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, sure. You know, I, um, I, I'd have to say that one thing that they taught me is that it's um, how, how important it is to, to share, to have people around you mm-hmm. it, like I don't like to go to wilderness alone I mean I have and I can but I much prefer to go with other people and then when you're in the wilderness it's it's a lot um, easier and it's a lot easier and safer and more enjoyable to travel with others and you can just make a much sort of closer social connection with people when you're in nature I feel at least for me and and so most of the, my close relationships that I have have been forged in the wilderness mm-hmm. and and I find for example some of the things that it has done for me is it um, encourages me to watch out for other people and to take care of them because it's it's dangerous out there and if you're crossing a river you want to help each other out or if you're just traveling you want your packs to be light so you have to share you know share a tent share a stove share food share a cook pot share stories share information and so I feel like it's just, it's made me, I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to say it's made me a better person because, um, but it's, it's, it's made me, um, appreciate 
people more. I think it's made me more generous and also it's it's made me more cooperative. Have you found that, and maybe you've seen this in yourself all those years ago, or maybe you recognize it with people that you take out that are maybe more novice than you are, but have you noticed a period of time that it takes them to maybe shed the um, the more modern human, you know, and to get back to nature, those roots? Sure. I think, um, yeah, it's funny in... Um yeah, I'd say here's one thing is, yes, like for instance, um, if you take a novice out, they want to sleep in a tent with a floor. If you take a novice out into the wilderness, they want to treat all of their water. You know, if you take a novice out in the wilderness, they they want to make sure they have lots of gloves and socks. And um, But people who've had a lot of experience out in the wilderness of Alaska, and that's kind of what I'm restricting myself to, mm -hmm. they will eventually realize that, wow, having a tent without a floor is actually more convenient than one with a floor. For example, if you've been, because we're not, we're not hiking on trails and we don't have a lot of, you know, ants or other insects that are pesky, but if you're, you've been hiking all day through the alders and the willows and you're soaking wet and it's pouring down rain, mm -hmm. you know, you don't really want to set up a tent and then strip naked and leave all your wet clothes outside the tent or climb into your tent with all those wet clothes on and the wet boots because you're just going to create a puddle on the floor. Mm -hmm. So if you have one of these floorless tents, you can just kind of pitch it right above you where you've got your backpack and you're all muddy and soaking wet and you can pitch it right above you. And sure, the ground is wet, but you can learn to build a little island of dryness inside of that tent and strip all your wet clothes off and fire up the stove and and you're actually a lot more comfortable in a tent without a floor than you would be in a tent with a floor um, and so those kinds of things are um, you know, like building fires I think a lot of times people have been raised on the um, you know, if they don't have a lot of experience, they've heard about camping and they know the leave no trace principle, but they've never really been in the wilderness. They may have been in the backcountry. And I think of the backcountry as like Chugach State Park is the backcountry where there's trails and, mm -hmm. and you're only a two day walk from town or from a road. And wilderness is when you're 30 miles or more away from the road. It might, it's going to take you three days to get to the road and there's no trails except for animal trails. And, and so when you're in real wilderness, which Alaska has some of the, the best wilderness in the world, um, when you're that far out, you know, you can, you can make a, a campfire and feel okay about it because you can burn it on a, a gravel bar and there's plenty of wood and there's no campground that's being overused. And you can drink the water. Um, you can find places where, you know, creeks come right out of the, you know, springs and creeks come right out of the mountain and you can drink the water without having to worry about getting sick from somebody else being there. Mm -hmm. And so um, people who haven't had that kind of wilderness experience, it takes a while to realize, for example, that they don't, they, they don't need to have gloves that their body warmth and they'll get comfortable with being in the outdoors. Like hunters, they got, there's a, like um, the people like Inupiaq and Athabascans and, and people who live in the bush oftentimes if they put their hands in cold water their 
body's response is not to pull blood out of their hands, but to actually put more blood into their hands. So it's, they call it the hunter's response, where your your vessels um, dilate and, and they flush warm blood into your hands. So instead of pulling the blood out of your hands, which is usually what happens when we get cold, that's why your fingers freeze, is because your body's pulling the blood out of your fingers and they stop working. The opposite happens. So once you become more comfortable in the outdoors, you're your physiology even changes so that you're more efficient. Do you remember the the first time that you spent time in the wilderness versus the backcountry? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. The first time I spent in the wilderness versus the backcountry, that's a really good question. I think I could, yes, point to the first time would be... Um, Probably, I would say, uh, right after I'd come to go to the University of Alaska in Fairbanks, I was going out on the weekends, and I I went down to Denali National Park. It was called Mount McKinley National Park then. And I took the bus out to Thoroughfare, the last bus of the season. And um, then the road was closed, and I hiked, I hiked from the Thoroughfare River, the Eielson Visitor Center area, mm-hmm. over Anderson Pass, and then out the other side and came out near the igloo. You know, the igloo is that weird thing along the Parks Highway up near mm-hmm. Cantwell. Yeah. And I came out there, and that w- that felt like real wilderness. You know, and, and it was probably only, you know, like a, a 45 or 50-mile hike, but there weren't any trails, and there were a lot of challenging river crossings and road crossings, and I walked along two different glaciers and went over um, a pass across the Alaska range. I'd say that was sort of my first real wilderness experience where I was several days from a road without any human trails around. Do you remember the, the feeling that you had? Were you scared? Were you excited? Yeah, both. I was exhilarated. (laughs) I was exhilarated. I was terrified. Sometimes I felt, you know, I was, I guess I was 16 years old. And sometimes I felt like I'd made big mistakes. I'd made big blunders. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, for example, I didn't, I hadn't walked on moraines before where, um, where the glacier has deposited a bunch of rocks, like the medial moraine along the side of the glacier. And underneath of that rock, that rubble is often ice. And I didn't realize that there was ice under there. And I was just walking down thinking it was like a typical talus slope. And the rock gave way and I skidded across the ice and it was at an incline. So I skinned my knuckles and my palm up on the ice with the rock embedded in it. And I was, I felt really foolish. Like, why didn't I think of that? You know, but I learned Mm -hmm. a good lesson and I've, I've, I've been wary of those conditions ever since. So there I felt really foolish and um, when I came to some river crossings, I felt scared because I didn't know really how to do them. And um, I was alone. And all I knew was that I should look for a place that was wider. And then when I crossed it and I made it across the river, I was exhilarated. I had this incredible feeling of confidence. And so for, on one side of the river, I felt, you know, um, foolish and terrified and wondered why I was there and then on the other side of the river just a few minutes later I was exhilarated and and looking for more of these kinds of challenges you mentioned mistakes or blunders what kind of blunders over the years have you learned from (laughs) wow (laughs) you name it (laughs) you know like um 
I think my father once told me we don't learn anything unless we're wrong. And so maybe I'll just have to say I've learned a lot. <laughs> were your parents into the outdoors? No, they weren't. You know, my mom was raised on a farm in southern Washington. And uh, and she, um, as soon as she could, she left the farm and moved to the city and met my father, who he himself also um didn't want to have anything to do with a farm and considered him to be a city slicker his whole life and and so I think that my interest in the outdoors can be traced back to the novelty of um, going to my grandmother's farm when I was a kid when I was like six seven eight years old and Mm -hmm. living in the city and then going to a farm and seeing like you know animals and then my uncles were really they they they're really nice to me they were really they entertained me they I think they, my mom had taken care of them after she left the farm, and so they felt like they should take care of me, I guess. And one of my uncles, Brian, he was only like nine years older than me, so we were pretty close. So like when I was a little kid, he was like a teenager, so, you know, he would take me out, you know, hunting and um, walking around in the woods near my grandmother's farm, and my other uncle, Zinn, you know, he taught me, you know, about farm animals and about hunting also. And mm-hmm. and so they're the ones that I would point to as developing my interest in the outdoors, especially um, over time when I was able to, you know, come to Alaska and stay with my uncles. They're the ones, not my parents so much, but my parents did indulge me. My mom, especially when I was um, like in junior high school, I was very interested in nature then too, you know, in different things like carnivorous plants and salamanders and lizards and snakes and I would mm-hmm. I would get triple A maps and read books and look at National Geographic and and my mom would let me put together our family vacations and so I would come up with hey let's go to this place and that place and and they would they'd encourage me to plan the trips and then they would take me to those places so I owe a lot to my family what was it about nature when you were a kid that that drew you to it? Why do you think you were so interested in it? You know, I don't know. I'd never really even thought about that. I mean, um, maybe, you know, I'd, I'd like to say that it's something that we're all interested in, you know, like, like that's what this guy E.O. Wilson in his book, Biophilia. So bio means life and philia means love. And he would claim that we all love life and that we're, we're all born with this interest in living things and in nature because that's what um, we needed to survive over all the thousands of years that we lived close to nature. It's only in the last few hundred years that we've not lived close, only like in the, the United States in the last hundred years that most of us don't live close to nature. And and so I think, um, you know, I, I can't say that it was something in my environment that caused a switch that made me interested. It could be just, you know, like people who were interested in a sport you know maybe they're 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 good at what they do they they get if you're usually if you're if you're good at something you enjoy doing it and um and so some people find what they're they're good at and and it it's just they find it it's not like it's like you know i'm not really a religious person but you could say it's sort of what how god created us you know or if you want to mm-hmm. talk about from a biological standpoint it's whatever genetic mutation that we happen to end up with that made us interested and good at that so i mm-hmm. i think in terms of the nature versus nurture i think my my interest in 
nature is something I was born with, but then it was encouraged by the environment that that, that I was nurtured under by my 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 relatives and my mom. Mm-hmm. Do you think being an explorer means something different nowadays than it did when you were younger? <laughs> well, that's a really good question. Um, so I'd say that being an explorer now um, in, you know, is, is more similar to what I was interested when in, when, and this is sort of embarrassing. I, I'd say that I'm more as an explorer, I'm more like the eight, nine and 10 year old version of myself. <laughs> and that when I was in my thirties and forties, you know, especially my twenties, thirties and forties, what I was interested in doing was, was challenging myself in nature. And then I would say, especially in the my 40s and 50s when I was interested in whitewater, um, running whitewater rapids, it was more about the exhilaration and the excitement of it. Mm-hmm. In, instead of, and I was exploring, like I could say I was an explorer, but I was, I was more exploring what I could do in these little pack rafts and what the pack rafts could do. And I, you know, the adrenaline, I, mm-hmm. I have to admit that the adrenaline was a big draw. You know, I think I, I feel like we as humans have uh, a little lizard brain buried in the middle of our head that is all about survival and maybe reproduction. And, and that survival part, when you um, scare yourself, that lizard brain is terrified. And then when you when you sur- survive that part that scared you, like running down a rapid and you make it, that lizard brain is just so overjoyed that it it survived. It's rewarding your body. It's like, hey, yeah. whatever you did, I'm going to make you feel good. So next time that happens, you do it again and we survive. You know, it's like a chemical reaction. Yeah. And then our human brain is the big fat part of the brain that wraps around that lizard brain. And that's the part that controls a lot of our what we want to do. And that brain goes, wow, I know how to make myself feel good. I'll just go scare myself. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and And so I feel that you know, in my 20s, you know, starting in my teens, you know, I, I'd, I, I could even point to it as starting around puberty, that starting in my teens and extending almost and, and pretty much most of the way through my 50s, I was, I liked, I liked that, you know, I liked, I climbed mountains, you know, I rafted rivers, mm-hmm. you know, I saw big animals, I went in the deep water, you know, I climbed trees, I did a lot of stuff that most people would think was, you know, scary. And I enjoyed it. And I, I was able to, um, in those things that we did, I did it with people who were really good at it. I, you know, I, it, I didn't invent this stuff. I was just lucky enough to be surrounded by people who were good at all these things and who also liked doing them. And, um, and I think we all sort of, you know, in, enjoyed it, but we also um, were able to intellectualize it and kind of come up with reasons other than the fact that it was just scaring us and we like to be scared. But now, you know, I'm in my, I'm 60 and for the last five years, you know, I'd lost my son. My son died in Costa Rica on a wilderness trip um, in 2014. And I kind of had an epiphany when I was looking for him because he went missing for a couple of years before we found his body. And I hadn't, you know, epiphany is the wrong word, but I had this realization that that all of that adventure that I'd been doing had been really selfish, that I had been doing dangerous things because I got a thrill out of it. But those dangerous things would have killed me and it could have killed me 
and and when I'm dead, you know, I'm not going to feel anything. I'm dead. My death doesn't mean anything except to those who are left behind who love me and and the people who, mm-hmm. you know, love and grief they go hand in hand as a as a well-known artist once told me and and so the more that you love somebody the more grief you feel when you lose them and I just you know I was getting old my testosterone was drying up and I had this realization that you know if I die you know my family's going to feel even worse you know and so I started to back away from and this selfish activity of just scaring myself because it felt good to me to scare myself and and I've also just found that I'm kind of getting older and returning to to having the same interests in nature that I had when I was young that is I'm more interested in the organisms and the interactions that the organisms I mean I can be happy just walking through the woods and seeing how how things listening to it sounds corny listening to the birds and watching the squirrels and having my dog run around you know all of those things seem really satisfying to me now when they weren't as satisfying to me when I was in my 20s and 30s yeah I don't find that corny at all because I'm in my early 30s and I love that stuff. I love going to the park and walking around in the sunshine and seeing squirrels and dogs, but maybe I'm just an old soul. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you're a, you're a lucky guy. You're a lucky guy. Do you mind if I ask a few questions about your son, Cody Roman? No. So I originally heard about and read news and magazine articles about his disappearance back in 2014 and then again when his body was found in 2016, but it wasn't until this morning that I actually read the stories. And I think it took me so long to read those stories because the details of his disappearance and, more importantly, your close relationship with him hit so close to home for me because my dad and I spent a lot of time together when I was a kid and also as a teenager. We traveled around the States, snowboarding at resorts, filming, and going to competitions. He was my coach, and I think without even realizing it, especially at the time, he was also one of my best friends. And so that was the impression that I got between you and your son, that you two weren't only father and son, but you were also close friends. Yeah, I'd say that that, that's accurate. Yeah, absolutely. And the way that you... You traveled to Costa Rica and went through that Costa Rican wilderness looking for him. I I have no doubt in my mind that that my parents, my dad, would do that same exact thing for me. Mm-hmm. Sounds like he would. I mean, I don't know how any father couldn't do that. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I mean, I, I never, to me, I, I never felt like there was any other thing to do. You know, like as soon as I realized he was something was wrong i i went to costa rica and looked for him and i felt like that was my my duty you know like like i that if i hadn't done it i i don't think i would have been able to live with myself and the book you wrote when did you decide that you were going to write that book about that journey that's when did i decide i was going to write a book i that's a great question i would say that um you know, the, what happened is um, I started writing things down immediately, you know, like, and I, I, when I say I started writing things down, I had a, like anybody would, I had a spiral notebook and I, 
had to write the phone number of the consulate that I was going to call um, mm. the American consulate in Costa Rica. And then I was writing down emails and names. And, and then I was in Costa Rica and I was meeting people and they were telling me things. and I was writing things down and then I was tracking information down and I was interviewing people and I was I was I was transcribing what they said and and then I was trying to piece together all the things that people had said that were conflicting or congruent and trying to make sense of it you know trying to just process it so that I could figure out well where should I look next where could he be mm-hmm. and then I found myself writing about how I felt about what was going on and um and so it was sort of a natural process of writing to kind of you know from utility um, of the search um, and to sort of utility of trying to you know understand what was going on with me and that extended over several years like two years and uh, especially when um, you know my wife Peggy suggested that we um, you know I'd been approached by television people and I I said no to all of them because I didn't want to do a TV show but this but then mm-hmm. somebody approached Peggy and said hey you know I lost my father he was killed in Honduras and I spent you know five years trying to get justice for his killer or get justice for him and get his killer put in jail and I had I got no traction until I went down there with a camera with a move with a you know a video camera mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden you know things came into place because the people there were so simple and blah 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 and Peggy said why don't we try that maybe this will help because you know we could we so I I wasn't going to argue with her you know and um, Mm -hmm. and it sounded you know like she was convinced and so I supported her idea and I was I I liked the idea too because I'd worked on some television shows before and um, I had witnessed with other television shows how easily they could get permits to go into public lands for example and so I thought that this production company would be would readily be able to get permits to go into Corcovado National Park in Costa Rica where Cody Roman had disappeared and mm-hmm. where I had looked but but had trouble you know getting traction to look the way that I would really like to have looked because of the regulations and rules there and like I, in order to look the way that I wanted to look, to search how I wanted to search, I had to go in illegal many times and and bring my own friends who were, you know, risking their lives. And it, all of that felt wrong. You know, I mean, I felt like I had to do it. You know, these were things that I had to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I, uh, but I, I would rather do them legally. And I felt like by aligning ourselves with this television, they said it was a documentary that it would, that it would work out. So, um, so anyway... Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is when I went down there with this television crew as far as writing a book um, I found myself you know the television it turned out not to be a documentary it turned out to be this reality TV show and they were trying to turn it into a big murder mystery and and mm-hmm. they they kind of reveled in the conflict between me and their principal investigator that they'd you know this guy who'd worked for the DEA for 25 years and then retired and just thought, you know, everybody was a criminal. And, and I was trying to, you know, make sense. I was there, you know, it was just me and then this TV crew and trying to make sense of what they were doing and convincing me to do. And so I was writing that all down Mm -hmm. just because, you know, I've always 
been a journal keeper. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I don't yeah. always keep a journal, but I've always been a journal keeper. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so I just found it was really helpful. And then, so I had, you know, three or four notebooks filled with stuff. And and I'd written a bunch of stuff about our family life before. And because we traveled in different places around the world and and even our kids had kept journals and my son had kept a journal and and sent some really great emails about the trips that he did while he traveled during mm-hmm. the six months prior to his disappearance across Central America and Mexico. So I had all of this stuff and I really wanted to kind of get the story right, especially after this TV show came out. And I wanted to get the story right because a lot of my friends and family wanted to know what happened and I, I kind of wanted to lay it all out. And so... Um, I was encouraged to write a book by a, an author whom I respect, and he died recently, a guy named David Roberts, and he'd come to Alaska to um, for the 50th anniversary of his climb on Mount Huntington, and he had given a talk over at the old Snow Goose, mm-hmm. and um, and I saw him, and we went out afterwards, and he said, Roman, you should you should write a book about about this, about you know. Um, because I'd we'd found Cody Roman by then. He said you should write a book about this, and here's my agent, and he can help you get get started. So that's kind of the story of how that happened. Something I keep thinking of is you must have had a pretty good understanding of how your son traveled and explored. Well, yeah, I mean, yes, um, I had a good idea because he, you know, we'd done it together, and um, and then. And then, and then this, where we'd done it mostly, you know, together was in Alaska and on sort of day trips, um, based out of, uh, like research, research, um, sites, research centers in the middle of, you know, uh, Costa Rica and, uh, Borneo, but I, you know, we'd never really done, you know, a, a wilderness camping trip, um, where we'd you know, travel together through tropical wilderness because it's uncomfortable. You know, I don't. Mm-hmm. And also, here's the other thing is like when I go to the tropics and, and when we'd gone to the tropics, it was very interesting to us to kind of have a base camp and then go out each day and look at the neat animals and plants that are there, the birds and the fantastic insects and the remarkable plants. And it's just it's nice. But if you carry a backpack with a bunch of food and you're kind of hiking like you might across you know, the Alaska range or whatever, mm-hmm. you, you don't, you know, it's, it's uncomfortable because it's 80 degrees and a hundred percent humidity and you've got this sweaty pack on and there's leeches or chiggers. And, mm-hmm. and then when you make camp, you know, there's ants and everything kind of wants to get into all your stuff. It's just, it's a very challenging environment to backpack in. So I hadn't really backpacked. I mean, we had when he was, I don't know, like 12, maybe we, we walked across Corcovado national park together on trails with a, a a class that I'd taken down there um, mm-hmm. from APU, and he was along, but um, he had more experience at that than than I did because he'd been doing these trips through uh, Central America, and he'd been writing me emails. Like he was a really good writer, you know, he's an excellent writer, and he would mm-hmm. he would say, "Oh, you know, um, Dad, I'm I'm going to take off for a couple of days. You know, I'm I'm in Guatemala." And, you know, I'm going to go up and climb this mountain and uh, I'll be gone for a couple of days. And he'd come back and he'd write me an email. Hey, I'm back. And this mountain was really cool. And here's what happened. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, he did a couple of trips that I thought were really 
um, remarkable. One was where he walked across this wild area, kind of on the borderlands between Mexico and Guatemala called El Peten. And uh, that was like, you know, 200 kilometers, I think, and he was out for 10 days. And then he did another trip with a Canadian. It wasn't so much a wilderness trip as it was sort of a like a traveling, a remote travel trip through um, down rivers in Honduras and to the Mosquito Coast in Nicaragua. So I had, I did, I knew what he was doing because he, he wrote these sort of detailed trip reports. And so I knew how he was traveling. But I also knew, you know, after a lifetime of of hiking around with him, what how he would approach a place and what he would do and not do. So, mm-hmm. so I yeah, it was really difficult to, to go down there with the intent of getting on the ground and looking for him, and then be told that you know if if they found me in the park, they would arrest me and put me in jail. You know that that was hard. Yeah. Did you find that writing that book was therapeutic at all for you? Oh, absolutely, in a lot of different ways. I mean. Um, the first half of the book where I, um, you know, it's not even the first half. It's like the first part one. There's, I don't know, a few chapters about, um, you know, falling in love with Alaska and mm-hmm. then climbing a mountain that gave me the confidence to, um, to kind of approach this young girl and meet her and this young girl. We were both teenagers and, and, and we're, we're married, you know, we're, yeah, she's here now. And, um. And so I, I kind of felt that was important. I, I tried in my book, I tried to draw a line that went from, you know, finding my son directly back, like one line that went backwards from finding him back to me, you know, to my start with my birth in mm-hmm. some sense. So it's like I sometimes people think, oh, this isn't about his son. This, this is an autobiography about him. Well, it's what it's really about is me looking for my son. It's not it's not about him and it's not an autobiography of me because all the things that I'd really like to beat my chest about, they're not even in the book. The only thing that's in the book are things that are directly related you know, to that line between finding him and me. And mm-hmm. and so the first third is, it was very fun. Not, not fun's not the right word. It was, it was satisfying and nostalgic to write and revisit, you know, meeting Peggy and, you know, climbing with Carl and, and, you know, Chuck jump, Chuck, you know, falling off of the cornice and me having to jump off the other side and realizing, wow, climbing is not for me. And then, you know, asking Peggy to marry me and then deciding to have kids and then raising our kids um, in Alaska and, and visiting the tropics and being a close family that, you know, camped and visited wilderness together. And then and then Roman's childhood and his young adulthood and, and then his trips through Central America. So, yeah, it was awesome for me mm-hmm. to process all of that, just to revisit that, but for a different reason. So like the first third you know, it was just very nostalgic. I mean, it would be, you know, probably like your parents looking back at at your family photos from when you were young. You're like, oh, remember this? Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, and that kind of attitude. You don't you don't talk about all the nasty stuff. You just remember the good stuff. And mm-hmm. um, and then the middle third is where I really look closely at his trip through Central America and Mexico. And it was just, you know, when you take when you take material 
and you bring it through your eyes and you pass it through your brain and it comes out your fingers and writing, that's a mm-hmm. really good way to process things and organize them and put them together and make sense of it. Yeah. And it, it just really gave me a huge appreciation for what he had done on his trip through Central America and Mexico. I mean, I'd read those things before, but writing about it again just gave me a super appreciation. And then, um, and then I think what you're really after is how, do it, how did it work for me to write the last third? Well, yeah, I think writing that last third, which is where I'm really looking for him and coming to grips with, with you know, what was my role in his disappearance and death. And that was really good for me. I mean, it doesn't, it was good. I mean, nothing will ever bring him back. And, you know, I, you know, I, I, I probably tear up about him, you know, every week, if not, you know, not every day anymore. But, um, but I, that really did help me to make sense of what had happened and to to try to come to terms with my role in what had happened. Mm-hmm. And you credit the book with all of that. I do. Mm-hmm. Do you know if the book was therapeutic for your wife or your family or even Cody Roman's friends? Yeah, that's a really good question. I That's a great question. All I can say is that... Um, you know, my, the, my my wife and my daughter and my mom and my sister, the four the four women in my life, mm-hmm. um, they I don't think they've ever finished the book. You know, they they I know they haven't. You know, they like the they like the nostalgic part and they they f- have read the parts of his travels through um, Mexico and Central America, but they can't read the the third part. Mm-hmm. It's just too tough. It is. Yep. It just, they, like my wife would say, she says, I don't want to relive that again. Mm-hmm. Do you know if she'll ever read it? <laughs> yeah, I know she never will. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you two would get together, you and your son, and talk about your most recent adventures, what kinds of things would you talk about? Because I imagine, and maybe I'm wrong, but I imagine you two being professional outdoorsmen and explorers that those conversations were different than say a pedestrian vacationer oh sure i you know um we would talk about the things that were kind of that went wrong that were humorous you know of course Mm -hmm. because that's where we learned something and um he liked to tease me you know and you know (laughs) and if we had pictures or how i looked you know that kind of thing he'd call me old man a lot and um (laughs) you know he and then we would talk about because he was a scientist even more than I am. I think he was less of an adventurer than I am or was and more of a scientist than I am or was in the sense that he he was more of a like a thinker. He didn't need to scare himself. I mean, he of course, like all of us, a little bit of fear is fun. Mm-hmm. But um, we, we would definitely talk about, wow, remember that rapid or, boy, weren't those ants big or... Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, we would talk about the nat. We also talked about the people, and he liked to make stories, and he had good um, perceptions of people. He would see things that I might miss, you know, details about their personality and that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. usually, that's that's a really good question. What would we when we came back? Well, we'd talk about the people that we encountered. We talk about the organisms that we saw and the 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 science of the organisms we saw, and then we we like to review the things that we thought were exciting and also the things that we did that were like kind of foolish and that we should not do the next time. Yeah. 
you know what made me write that question down is I had mentioned earlier in this conversation that my dad and I, you know, we spent so much time together traveling and snowboarding. And I recently got back into snowboarding. And my first inclination, my first thought after, you know, going up was to text my dad and to tell him that, hey, like I still have these tricks. And he's like, oh, you know, what tricks do you still have? And I'm sitting there just kind of like, geeking out you know about these things to him and he's texting me back he's like oh sick like do you still have this trick do you still have this trick oh how big was the jump you hit you know and (laughs) and it was just so uh you know it's those magical moments that i think can really only exist between like um you know like parents and kids oh for sure yeah and parents and parents and their children what who have shared experiences together it's that's yeah. the important thing and and i i'm afraid that not enough parents i know that i wish that i'd spent more time with my kids than i did you know i mean um and it's i i that's great and i think that what you've related the fact that he knew what you had done was because you guys had been together and he'd seen you do that mm-hmm. and that is that forms a bond a really important bond like the most important bond I think that we have as humans is between parents and offspring, you know? Mm-hmm. When you think of your son today, where does your mind go? Oh, when I think about my son today, you know, it's, it's sad to say, I, I think usually I, I, I wish he was with me, you know, like mm-hmm. if I think of him, I kind of, I don't know what that means, but usually my first thought is I wish he was here. And then the second thought, when I think back, as I think about the things, if I'm thinking, you know, I, I wish he was here, then I, I remember what it was that we were doing that was would be related to that and why I wish he was there, what it is that I wish he would see. Um, you know, I miss, I for a long time, I really, and I still, but I kind of got over it a little bit, but we would, if I wanted to share something, I could always share it with him, you know, like, kind of like um you wrote your dad or talked to him and said hey mm-hmm. i'm getting back in snowboarding and um and i would for example say you know i might see something like a video or read an article or see something that was interesting that i knew he'd be interested in i loved sharing that with him and i just i miss having somebody i can share that stuff with because i i don't really have i mean i i do share things with my friends but it's not the same because it just doesn't have like the depth you know Mm -hmm. you know roman that that does it for my questions um i want to thank you for chatting with me today it was an honor and a pleasure to hear about your life as an explorer and also to learn about your son he sounds like he was a great guy I i think he was he was a great guy he really was Do you have anything else you'd like to add? You know, um, the last thing I would say, if I had anything to say, and, you know, um, if I'd say, like, if you are a father, (laughs) to, uh, you know, spend as much time with your kids as you can, um, doing things that you both enjoy. um, and, And then the other thing I would say is if you're a young person, and you you have parents we all have parents but um if you're a young person and you do enjoy scaring yourself to remember that um 
if you were to die doing something that you think is recreation, that the people who are going to be hurt the most are not you because you're going to be dead. The people who are going to be hurt the most are the people who love you the most. And so I would just kind of, you know, just end with letting people know that, that to, to think about that. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Roman. Yeah, my pleasure, Cody. Thanks for having me. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash crude magazine. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats.